Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, go ahead and take your Bibles out and open up, like Pastor Preston said, to the book of Psalms. Book of Psalms. Psalms 23, to be precise. As you know, we've been going through uh, some of the Psalms. A few weeks back, uh, John Ford got in on the, the action there and preached on a Psalm. And last week, Pastor Preston preached on, I believe it was Psalm 109, a very difficult Psalm to preach on, an imprecatory Psalm. Not sure how many of you knew what imprecatory was before uh, last week. And uh, just a, a very difficult topic to, uh, to be able to preach and share on, uh, but was thankful for uh, Pastor Preston sharing with us uh, in that way. Uh, psalm 109 is probably one of the least memorized psalms and, or passages of Scripture for that matter. It's probably one of the more obscure psalms, and we are transitioning from one of the most obscure passages of Scripture to one of the most commonly known, referenced, memorized uh, passages of Scripture within Psalm 23. And I've got to be honest with you, Psalm 23 uh, if, if you were to ask me what my favorite psalm was, it, I wouldn't go to Psalm 23. If I were to survey you as a congregation and say, ask you, what is your favorite psalm? I'm guessing 25 might be conservative, 25%, maybe 50%, could be even higher than that. That would uh, point to Psalm 23 as one of your favorite passages of Scripture. And uh, so uh, I... I consider this a difficult passage to preach on because so many people are familiar with it and love it, and I don't want to mess it up. And so uh, hopefully we can do Psalm 23 justice. Uh, but it wasn't on my radar, really. I think as a young man growing up, uh, you know, and, and hearing Psalm 23, I heard the Lord is my shepherd. I wasn't really looking for one more authority figure in my life to tell me what to do. Uh, Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And even though this is not what the verse means, I think there is a very real sense in my own life where I thought that uh, only God could be happy or I could be happy. And, you know, the two couldn't coexist. And it meant that I shall not want. I had to get rid of everything I wanted so God could be happy. That is not what this passage is saying. But, you know, it didn't really draw me into it because I didn't understand it. Uh, you know, when it said, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he makes me lie down in green pastures. I was a young man. I don't want to lay down. Who's laying down? Who needs, who needs to lay down? What's, what's the deal with that? Uh, now, I got to admit that the next passage or the next verse where it says, you leave me beside still waters, I love fishing. And so I'm like, okay, now we're talking. Now we can, now we can start this conversation uh, about the Lord is my shepherd leading me besides these still waters. Um, so it wasn't, I don't think it was one of those things that was really on my radar. Most of the time when I heard it, it was, you know, it's more like a funeral dirge in some ways and just, the Lord is my shepherd, kind of like a, a sad, depressing psalm. And it just didn't really, uh, you know, entice my heart maybe as much. And, and uh, it wasn't until um, Dar Hewitt's memorial service a couple of weeks back, they, uh, this was her favorite passage. And the family asked if I could share a little bit on it. And so I started studying it. And you know how God kind of awakens within you that, uh, that hunger, that desire, that burning for Scripture? Like, like the two men on the road to Emmaus when Jesus was talking to them, they were just like, it burned within me. That's kind of what this passage started doing within me. And so I'm very thankful to, to darn her love for the Word of God and, and, uh, and how that has impacted me in, in reading and studying this passage of Scripture here. But Psalm 23 was written by, as you know, uh, David. 
It was written by, we don't know if he was a shepherd when he wrote this or whether he was king at the time, but uh, it seems, and I would, I would seem to point to that David was a little older, a little deeper, experience in life and an understanding spiritual truths when he was writing this. Uh, but when we look at the passage, it can be divided up into either one, two, or three metaphors. I just kind of all thought it was the Lord is my shepherd, it was all about sheep. But when I was looking at it a little bit more closely, a lot of the scholars will say the first, uh, you know, three verses might be or more about the shepherding metaphor. Verse four, when it's talking about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, it's moving into more of a, a guide, God is our guide metaphor. And then the last two passages, the last two verses, are more on a God is a host metaphor. We are going, living into the house of the Lord forever. And so you can, see, you can see those three different options at play. I prefer looking at it as two metaphor system, verse one through four referring more to sheep, and then uh, the rest of the verses referring more to God as our eternal host. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at primarily verses 1 through 4. I was really hoping to get through the whole psalm, um, and just as the more I study, the more I study, I want you to know that you are lucky to get past the first two words in this psalm with me this morning. I am not joking. I was just about ready to camp on the Lord, just the Lord, the Lord, and we're going to camp out on it uh, quite a bit, just to forewarn you. Uh, but hopefully we'll, we'll uh, make a little bit more progress uh, than just that. Uh, those of you who were at uh, Dar Hewitt's memorial service, some of this might be a refresher in some ways, uh, a repeat, if you will. And uh, I'm not apologetic within that fact at all because this is a psalm uh, of contemplation, a psalm of meditation. And when you contemplate and you meditate, you don't read something, you walk away from it. You keep thinking about it over and over and over again. And so uh, we're going to be doing that um, today. We're going to be meditating and reflecting on this psalm from King David in Psalm 23. And so if you will please look to your, um, your scripture, uh, the Bibles that you have in your hand, hopefully, and you can read along with me here. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God, may you be praised and honored in the reading of your word as we meditate and reflect on it, Lord. May the truths of your word be borne out in our lives for your honor and glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 23 is a psalm of meditation and reflection. I think, personally, it is a folly to say the name of the Lord without taking time to pause. Saying, saying the name of God is not like saying my name. If you say my name, my name is easily en encompassed, the essence of my name, John. You can say, yes, that is John. John loves God. He loves his family. He loves fishing, flannels, music, and woodworking. There's John. There you have it. 
God's name, however, is not quite so easily encompassed and encapsulated. To understand the rest of the psalm, we must understand the name. And that's what some Jews called God, Hashem, the name. Because his name was too holy to utter or to even spell out fully. This name that is above every other name. And so in verse 1, when we see the Lord, we must pause. The capital L-O-R-D is referring to the Hebrew term Yahweh, which is literally translated I am. If you went up to somebody and, and said, what does your name mean? They would say, my name means I am, and you'd be like, I am what? It seems like an incomplete sentence. I am what? But in reality, I am is the most complete, comprehensive, whole, solid, tangible, perfect, beautiful, all-encompassing truth that we could possibly ponder or dare even utter. The Lord, Yahweh, I am. What this means is that God absolutely is, and that God is all that is absolute. Scripture tells us that God is eternal, that he is the alpha and the omega, the A to Z, the beginning of the end, but it's not just the beginning of the end. He has no beginning, and he has no end, and there is no one that comes before him, and there is no one that will come after him. He is the I am that is eternal. He is also self-existing. That means that God is completely, wholly independent. He depends on absolutely nothing to make him who he is, to support him, or to sustain him. He is the I am. He is independent, completely independent. He is not dependent on Russian, Middle Eastern, Venezuelan, or American oil. He is independent. He is not dependent on solar, wind, or nuclear power. He is independent. He needs no food to give him sustenance. He needs no roof to give him shelter, and he does not need humanity to give him company. He is the I am who is self-existing. The I am is also the unchanging one. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is not in process as if he's becoming something different or better as if to be improved upon. He is the I am who I am. He is the all-powerful one, as Revelation 19 says, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns, the omnipotent, all-powerful. Numbers 23, 19 asks the question uh, about, say, it says that, uh, has God said and will he not do? Who will thwart his plan? No one, because he is the I am. And that means that everything in creation, the person sitting next to you, the pews that you're sitting on, this building, this roof, the lights, everything that we look around and consider to be part of reality, the reality is, is that reality is completely and wholly dependent on God. Even the laws that govern our reality, the laws that we consider science, are in and of themselves dependent on God. They do not govern God. They operate at his goodwill and his pleasure. Everything that is not God depends on God. John Piper put it, puts it this way. He says, our dependent reality, everything that we see that we think is the reality, 
Our dependent reality is but a shadow of the solid reality of that which is God, a mere echo to the thunderclap of God's thunder. We are but shadows before the ultimate reality and absolute that is God, Yahweh, the great I am. He is not something good. He is all that is good. Mark 10, 18 says, no one is good but one, and that is God. He does not reflect light or merely look like light. He is the light. 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light and in him is no darkness. James 1, 17 calls him the father of lights. God does not simply love. God is love. And all love is from God. 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Metaphors and similes do not define God. God defines them. A a mountain is not mighty, or God is not mighty as a mountain. The mountain is mighty because that mountain demonstrates just a nanoparticle of God's power. Micah 1, 4 says, The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before fire. like water rushing down a slope. That is the great I am. And so we must consequentially ponder the name of God, lest we take his name in vain. We must recognize that the most important thing that we can think about, meditate upon, and ponder is God himself, the I am. A.W. Tozer, a, a pastor quite a few years back, now passed away, He said, the most important thing about man is what comes to his mind when he thinks about God. I think that's pretty close to the truth, but C.S. Lewis disagreed with this uh, idea. C.S. Lewis said, the most important thing about man is what comes to God's mind when he thinks about us. I think that is more true. So let us not lazily Without thought or consideration, let slip off our tongues the single most beautiful, joyous, loving, gracious truth and a gift that God offers to humanity that God might dare and deign to consider us to be his sheep. The Lord Yahweh, I am, can be, or as David said, is my shepherd. How ridiculous, how crazy this concept should be to us. The Lord is my shepherd. I think about when uh, God came to Abraham and Sarah and told them that they would have uh, children in their old age. And Sarah's response was laughing because she was like, me, look, look at me, I'm so old, this is impossible. How could such a wonderful thing possibly true? How can it possibly be true? And she laughed in her disbelief. We should not laugh at this truth. We should believe it is real. God has offered to be our shepherd. Psalm 8, David marvels about this profound truth. He says, the one whose fingers set the moon and the stars in motion, this this God who is God of all creation, has made all these things, and he asks this question, who is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you would care for him? And here we see that not only is God mindful of him, but that he cares, not only because he is God, because he is the God 
of love. He is, God is love. And he cares not just enough to be called our king. He cares enough to be called our shepherd, which is a humble title indeed for a king. And as a shepherd cares for his sheep, God cares for us, his people. Isaiah 40, 11 says, Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing youth. So what does it mean that the Lord is my shepherd? And that's what the next couple of verses really start to unpack for us. Verse 1, the Lord, and we paused and pondered the name of God. The Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean? It means that you shall not want. There was a little girl who memorized this passage in Psalm 23, and she misquoted it. But in misquoting it, I think she got maybe perhaps more to the theological heart of what was happening in this passage than many of us have discovered in our whole life. She says, the Lord is my shepherd. I got all I want. She nailed it on the head. It's not about the other stuff. I was talking to my girls to confirm that this is true, but I'm pretty sure that my girls aren't content uh, because they have a daddy who has a credit card who can take them to a shop and pretend to buy them anything that they want. I believe that my girl's contentment is at least somewhat tied up in that they love me, not in what I can get for them. They love me. Right, girls? <laughs> we practiced this before I left this morning. Yes. Natalie was the only one that said she was going to dissent, but then she, I think you were kidding. It's not about the stuff. My girls are happy and content because they have a daddy who loves them. It's not about the stuff. Satan thought it was, and he wants you to think it is about the stuff as well. He even told God that it was about the stuff. He said, that's the only reason that your servant Job worships you. It's because of the stuff you gave him. That's the only reason. But then everything was taken from Job. What was taken from Job? His wealth, his family, his children. His health was taken from him. All that he was left with was some pretty ragged friends and a bitter wife who told him to curse God and die. And yet Job, as everything is being taken from him and he is wrestling through, discovering this profound truth of what God is showing him, this is his response. In Job 19, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin and has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Everything had been taken away, and yet he had everything because he knew about the resurrection and the hope that he had in having God himself. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph put it this way. He says, whom am I in heaven but you? Out of all the heavens, what is there but you, God, and you alone? Who am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. I'm going to die. Everything, my health is going to deteriorate. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance, this is what I have to hold on to and cling to. Charles Spurgeon, 
One of the, the prince of preachers put it this way. He said, come what may, if famine should devastate the land or calamity destroy the city, I shall not want. Old age with its feebleness shall not bring me any lack, and even death with its gloom shall not find me destitute. I have all things and abound, not because I have a good store of money in the bank, not because I have skill and wit with which to win my bread, but because the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's not I shall not want because God has all I need. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want because God is all I need. Amen? Amen. Psalm 16, 5 through 11, I'm not gonna read it all, but David again says, the Lord is my portion and my inheritance. And this inheritance is beautiful to me. In your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy, and in your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Where did he find his pleasure? In the presence of the great I am. In the presence of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want because God is all I need. And that's why people who have everything, seemingly everything, can have absolutely nothing. That is why people who have nothing, seemingly nothing, can have everything. That is why the widow could give her last might. Did she give everything? No, she had everything still. This is why the martyr can sing praises with his last breath, because the Lord is his shepherd. This is why we can bless those who curse us, because the Lord is is our shepherd. And this is, this is why we can rejoice in all things, because the Lord is our shepherd. So that's the main point this morning. Number one is when the Lord is your shepherd, he is all you need. Got it? Hold on to that. Second point I want to make. When the Lord is your shepherd, you will feast on the truth of his word. See, the danger in this passage is not in verse 4 when it talks about walking through the valley of shadow of death. The danger for us is in transitioning from verse 1 into verse 2. Because immediately we talked about how God is everything that we need, everything that we want, everything that we desire. He is our portion and our inheritance forever. And though everything be taken away from us in this earth or in heaven, God is all we need. The danger is to recognize that truth and then immediately in verse 2 to step away and start defining these, this pasture, these green pastures and these still waters as anything other, than, anything other than God himself. We start defining them by things that we take pleasure in and that we find rest within. That is the danger that we, we face in this passage of Scripture. And the danger is if we replace God with anything else that gives us pleasure is that we're going to totally miss out on God himself. We will not be satisfied. So looking back on your life, a question for all of you, how have you defined the green pastures and the still waters? What are those? What are the green pastures and still waters that God is talking about? I was talking about this with Pastor Preston this week because it's hard. This passage doesn't tell us exactly what these still waters and 
green pastures are. And that's dangerous, one, for us to over, uh, uh, you know, to over, try to over-spiritualize and over-analogize, you know, Scripture. That's a danger. But I think it's maybe even a greater danger if we don't look to Scripture to discover what they are for us to go in and fill the blanks ourselves. Because in, our in our own hearts, we're going to fill them in with things that our hearts are naturally inclined towards that are not God himself. So again, looking back on your own life, how have you defined those green pastures and those still waters? What are those things that make you lie down and rest and be at peace and to be filled and to be satisfied? You know, it's so easy for us to be like, man, if I could just have a day where I could read a good book and sit next to a fire, you know, on a snowy day, that would help me to relax, feel whole and be at peace. Maybe if I could spend some time at a cabin on a lake with my family, that's what I enjoy. Is that what this passage is talking about? Maybe for teens and kids, maybe a snow day, no school. That's what energizes you. That's what gives you peace and excitement. You know, you're, you're like, yeah, let's go. Maybe getting a good doctor's report, you know, on your health. Or a personal day all to yourself for some of you moms out there. These things are certainly good, but I don't think that's what this passage is referring to. And so two questions I think that will help us define what God is talking about is what do sheep do in green pastures? Before you start thinking too literally, we've all walked through pastures full of livestock, and so maybe our middle school boys shouldn't answer this question right offhand. What do livestock, what do sheep do in green pastures? What? Eat, yeah. We know they lay down. That's what this passage is telling us specifically, lay down. But sheep apparently do not lay down until they have fed themselves on this grass. Then they lay down. So we know that they eat first. What do sheep do next to still waters? Drink. Good. So we got the first basic questions out of the way. So the next follow-up question is, what do God's sheep eat that is different than what everyone else in the world is eating? Man, y'all are good. What do God's sheep drink that is different than what everyone else is drinking? Yeah, kind of flows for me. We'll get to that here in just a second. First thing, Matthew 4, 4 says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Hebrews 5, 13 through 14 says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food, solid food of God's word is for the mature. What are God's, what are the green pastures? What is the feast that God's sheep are eating that is different from the world? His word. God actually told the prophet Ezekiel and the apostle John to eat the scrolls of his word that he gave to him. I found that fascinating. So the green pastures that God makes us to lie down in is his word. That is how God feeds his sheep. That is where our peace and our nourishment and our rest is found, in the presence of God in his word. Why are we going to trade that and go look for it anywhere else? God's told us exactly where to go to find this nourishment for our souls. God does not have to make me go fishing. 
God does not have to make you find a day for yourself. God does not have to make you read a good book. A lot of those things come naturally. But in our flesh, going to God's word to find this nourishment is not a natural thing. And I think that's why this passage says, he makes me lie down in these pastures. This is a work of the divine God to lead us to his word, to be able to feast upon that. For any of those who are struggling to do a devotion for five minutes a day, you know that struggle, and the struggle is real. This is a divine, this is something that God has to do in our life to lead us to his word. One of the things that I, I thought was cool that I learned about sheep is sheep will not lay down and rest until they've had eaten their, their full. And then once they've eaten, they will continue to chew the cud. And I was just pondering that, and I was like, I think that's what God wants us to do with his word. We eat till we're a full, and then we continue to meditate and contemplate. And uh, you remember that verse that says, uh, uh, talks about God, uh, oh, how does it go? I delight in the law of the Lord, and I will meditate day and night. Meditate day and night? How do you do that? How do you feed day and night? It's like the sheep, the sheep chewing the cud. He's eaten, and yet he, he continues to, that continues to nourish him and feed him throughout. I just thought that was a really cool picture of God's word continuing to nourish us throughout the day. How many of you have ever just woken up in the night and had God's word of truth on your heart? God's word has this amazing way of popping up in times that you're not even like trying to. That's a work of God. Listen to those moments when God is taking the word that you've, you've feasted on and bringing it up through other times of your day or, or night. My pastor back in Arizona, Pastor Steve Cole, said this. He says, I believe the main reason we as God's people lack contentment is that we feed consistently on God's word is that we don't feed consistently on God's word. Instead, we fill our minds with poisonous weeds of TV, movies, and the daily newspaper, and then we wonder why we are anxious and we are troubled. God's word has milk for the babe in Christ and meat for the more mature. If we feed on it daily and chew on it as the sheep chews its cud, we would find contentment in Christ himself. Not something else, but in Christ himself. Where do we find our fullness of joy and our pleasures forevermore? The presence of God. How can we interpret green pastures as anything else other than God himself? When the Lord is your shepherd, you will feast on the truth of his word. What do God's sheep drink that is different from than what everyone else drinks? Now, this was kind of hard. Again, you know, we're looking to Scripture. It doesn't tell us exactly in this passage exactly what it is. But when I start looking at passages around it and other scripture passages, especially pertaining to what this water is that feeds God's sheep, there's only one conclusion that I could be possibly drawn to. We see this in John 4, 13 through 14, when Jesus is sitting, uh, he's traveling through Samaria and, and stops at a well and is talking to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. And he says this to her, he says, everyone who drinks of this water, this is what all the other people are drinking out there, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
I know of no other thing that I can point to in Scripture or anywhere else that I can see that, that is, brings refreshment to God's sheep other than, I think it's pointing to the gospel message. We see this further elaborated in John 7, 37 through 38. It says, on the last day of the feast, uh, Jesus got up and he stood and he cried out. Thinks he's trying to get some people's attention about this, these waters that he wants his sheep to be able to, to, be, to drink from and have their thirst quenched by. He is crying out and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. And he tells you exactly how God's sheep drink. How do we drink? Whoever believes in me. This is telling me that God's sheep drink from the gospel. How do we do that? By believing in Christ. And he says, out of this, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he goes one step more. It's not just about the gospel and eternal life. God is also giving one more thing in this passage that is important to, to equate with these living waters. He says, now this is said about the Spirit. God has given, as part of the gospel message, is not just that we are cleansed from our sins when we repent. God has given us himself, the Spirit of God. It's, it's not about the stuff God's saying, I am all that you need, and I've just given you, and I'm showing you, I'm giving you my word, and I'm giving you the gospel, and I am giving you my spirit. I've given you all these things, and yet you still are tempted like Satan loves to do. It's about the stuff. Oh, you know, the green pastures are these things that I like to do in my spare time that rejuvenate me and make me feel better about myself and make me feel like, you know... I'm a good person, and I can go one more day, and I can get her done, and, you know, all this self-help psychological stuff. And, you know, it's like, you know, God's Word tells us who we are. God's Word gives us strength for the day. God's Word gives us hope. God's Gospel gives us hope. God's Spirit leads us. God is all we need. There is nothing else. There's nothing else that we as God's sheep need to eat from or drink from than these truths. Again, the danger in this passage is the temptation for God's people to think that this well is anything other than God, that these pastures are anything other than God. In Jeremiah, in the Old Testament, prophet Jeremiah said this. He said, for my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me, get what he calls himself here, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And what did they replace them with? Cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, containers that can hold no water. I think that's another great definition of sin. Why does God hate sin? Because sin can't deliver what God can deliver to the people that he loves. Sin makes these great promises of satisfaction. But he's saying these, these broken sisters can't hold water. They will not provide life. This unquenchable thirst that they have will not be satisfied. And there's only one place we can find that. 
in God's word and in the truth of the gospel and the indwelling of the presence of the great I am and his spirit in each one of our lives. That is it. That is all. And so that's the reason God, one of the reasons God hates sin is it doesn't hold water. It doesn't hold the joy and satisfaction that only God can provide to us as people. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. And so when the Lord is your shepherd, you recognize that he is all you need. When the Lord is your shepherd, you will feast on his word. When the Lord is your shepherd, your thirst is quenched by the truth of the gospel and the dwelling of his spirit inside each of you. When the Lord is your shepherd, this is point number four, your broken soul is restored through God's word, through the gospel, and repentance. Does it say that? You restore my soul. How does God restore his soul? He's already told us. It's easy for us if, you know, just to, to uh, you know, just let this just be a sheep in the pasture metaphor, but God's already like explaining to us how he restores our soul through his word, through the gospel, through the giving of his spirit. That's how God restores our souls. No other way. I don't think it's a coincidence. Actually, let me go back for just for a second. God's word, Psalm 19:7 says, "The law of the perfect, the law of the Lord is perfect." And what does the law of the Lord do? Revives the soul. 2 Corinthians 5:17 says, "Therefore if anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, behold the new has come." See the renewal there? It's talking about the gospel. Third thing though is I don't think it's a coincidence when it's talking about having our souls, you know, he renews our souls. It's not a coincidence that the same term that is used there is the same term that is used for repentance. Isn't that interesting? To revive, to renew our souls, the same word that's used for repentance. And that's because there is a renewal that can only come in the gospel on the other side of repentance. We see this perhaps most clearly in David's life. Psalm 51, 2 through 4, uh, David is repenting for his sin that he committed with Bathsheba. And he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Going down a few verses later in verses 10 through 12, this is part I really, really love. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That renewal and refreshing only comes through God's word, the gospel, and a heart of, of, repent, of repentance. That's where the renewal comes from. Again, O God, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me and cast me not away. Cast me not away. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen to David as a result of this sin? It wasn't losing his kingdom. It wasn't losing his popularity status. It wasn't losing all these other things that he had as a king. And if he had good health or whatever else he had, that is, was not his main concern. David said, God, forgive me. And please don't 
cast me from your presence. That was the thing he was afraid to lose more than anything else. The presence of God. A king said that. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. God was all he needed. God was all he wanted. And in his repentance, that was all he was asking for. God, don't take me. Don't, don't leave me. Don't forsake me. Leave your spirit. Leave your presence. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. An amazing prayer that all of us should have on our hearts. When the Lord is your shepherd, your broken soul is restored through his word, the truth of the gospel, and a heart of repentance. And the reward is God's presence, his spirit, and the joy of our salvation. We're running a little bit short on time, so I'm going to have to breeze through some of these, sadly. But uh, talks about leading us in paths of righteousness. You know, what are the paths of righteousness? He's already told us in this, you know, leading up to this point. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. God's already told us where he's leading us. He's leading us to his word. He's leading us to the gospel. He's given us his spirit. You know, we have all these. He's leading us in repentance, constant repentance. It's not just when we're saved as Christians. We say there is no sin within us. We, God is not there because we have all sinned. We continue to sin. That heart of repentance is a continuation. So when God leads us in the path of righteousness, we're just continuing in what God, where God has already brought us through his word, through the gospel, through the giving of his spirit, and walking in a heart of repentance. Why do we do this? For his name's sake. Now we just wrapped all the way back to the beginning. Whose name is worthy to make all this happen? His name is consequential. My name is not. My name does not deserve this, this love. Yet his name moves him to offer it to us. For his name's sake. His name's sake is why God does this, for his glory, so we can bask in his glory. He is loved so that we can be loved. He is good so that we can experience goodness for his name's sake. That's, that's what demands this, because God is love and he is good for his name's sake. And so as I look back on this psalm, even though we can't complete all six verses. I'm happy I got past the first two words. As I look back on this psalm, I want us all to realize that the Lord is my shepherd is not a blanket statement. This is not something everyone can say about themselves. David said, the Lord is my shepherd, and then he point, pointed to the proof that showed that he was indeed a sheep in God's flock. What did he point to? Love of God's word. Love of the gospel. Embracing the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He embraced that God is the, the name of God is holy and righteous and his own name 
as in Psalm 51, was a name that was, was corrupted by sin. And the only way that he could be restored and to be renewed was to repent and trust in the word of God. Jesus become flesh. God become flesh in the man Jesus who died on the cross for his sins. David didn't know how all that, this is Old Testament, he didn't know how that all was going to be, no pun intended, fleshed out. But God was showing his people, even in the Old Testament, they were anticipating the Messiah that was to come. And so when I look at this psalm, I think one of the reasons that I'm growing in my love and that burning passion for this psalm is because it is a psalm of the gospel. I don't think it's coincidence that Psalm 22 was, the previous psalm right before this was a psalm of the cross. Jesus quoted and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right after that, in Psalm 23, David says, so you can be my shepherd and I can be your sheep. That is why. So I look at this again as the psalm of the gospel and how we can all know that we are God's sheep. The love for his word, love for the gospel, and dwelling of God's spirit, his presence with us always, and an ongoing heart of repentance. It's kind of a no-brainer, verse four. It's like, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. If you understand everything that comes before, by the time you get there, you're like, no duh. No kidding. Not surprised at all. That darkness is just a shadow of darkness. All the darkness this life holds is but a shadow to the reality that is God. 